0: be fun. You did. I might come down to the witch with it because it's a beautiful satire.
1: A children's book. Welcome, one and all, to She Said, She Said's premiere episode of our hashtag eye candy show. A special feature in which we are celebrating and honoring Internet movers and shakers who are truly and eyeful. That is, they are interesting, innovative and iconic. These incredible men and women are truly eye candy in every sense of the word. They are, as John Lennon so aptly put it. One of the beautiful people. Yes, that was a great, John Lennon. And I am Lena Stagg, your co-host on She Said, She Said. I'm the author of the Recipe Records series of rock and roll cookbooks, full of good food, good fun, and great rock and roll stories, facts, and trivia.
2: Hey, everybody. I am Jude Sutherland-Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, which is a highly researched and documented narrative history detailing, of course, the life of John Lennon and his wonderful mates, those Fab Four, the Beatles. Now, some of you already know that Lena and I are here about once a month to compare and contrast controversial topics in the Beatles' world. For the last five months, we spent a lot of time going head-to-head and toe-to-toe, Debating that age-old question, I don't know if we answered it, but we sure debated the heck out of it. Who <laughs> really was, and is, the greatest rock and roll band of all time? The Beatles? Yay! Or the Stones? And coming up, uh-huh. we and I are going to be locking horns, because we're going to be debating which was the best Beatles film, A Hard Day's Night or Help?
1: Oh, I cannot wait for that. But, you know, every so often, we're going to pause in our debates and discussions and introduce you to some of the most fascinating personalities that we've encountered in the Beatles world. And today we begin by welcoming one of the most diverse and brilliant gentlemen we've ever encountered in our sojourn through all things Beatles,
2: It's been a real blessing for both Lane and I to know him. We first met him at the Fest for Beatles Fans when he was releasing a brand new, now it's a well-established Beatles book. It's called The Beatles and Me on Tour, and it is very unique in that it's not uh, surmising what happened on that tour. It is filled with first-hand data. Our guest book tells all about the time that he spent with the Beatles as the only journalist to travel with the Beatles from the beginning to the end of the 1964 North American tour. And look, that alone would be enough to recommend him as a brilliant writer, but the more we got to know him when he served as featured author for Beatles at the Ridges, Authors and Artists Symposium. We learned so much more about what he did in the Beatles' world. For example, he served as George Harrison's ghostwriter in 1964 for George's Daily Express columns. And we really began to respect and admire our guest, not only as a great writer, but as a genuine and totally interesting gentleman.
1: Not long after that, we all traveled to the Grammy Museum in Mississippi to take part in the first Beatles symposium ever held there. And once again, this distinguished journalist was our featured speaker. He not only shares his vivid and entertaining memories of the Beatles, but he also talks about his friendship and the Beatles' friendship with. Muhammad Ali, and he spoke about the Beatles' important role in the 1960s civil rights movement and how their stance on integration truly mattered.
2: And definitely, our guest should know all about that, because guess what? One of the things we're going to talk about today is the fact that he was right there on hand to report the world-changing events when James Meredith entered Ole Miss. And we'll let him tell you how he managed that incredible feat when no other reporters were allowed. But that isn't all. Our eye-candy guest today was also the first journalist to write an in-depth detailed book on the Charles Manson murders a book that was so accurate that it was actually used in the trial of Manson as court evidence
1: that's right isn't that eerie uh he also traveled with Ronald Reagan as one of the boys on the bus he toured with Bobby Kennedy and was only a few feet away from Bobby when he was tragically shot and killed He was close friends with Allie McGraw and Steve McQueen, and he's also interviewed everyone from Paul Newman to Elizabeth Taylor.
2: Furthermore, to me, the number one accomplishment in becoming our first guest on our Eye Candy series is is that he is one of the sweetest. Kindest people we know, and it is our great honor, if I do not get choked up here, to introduce to you the influential, invigorating, supremely eye candy individual, Mr. Ivor Davis. Ivor, welcome to She Said, She Said.
0: Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, let me just say that I've had to move to a larger room because with this flattery, my head is swollen and it's too big for this room. So uh, thank you for that overwhelming introduction, and I'm moving to a larger room so my big head can fit. Okay. <laughs> by, by the way, oh. I, know, I know you've got a lot to talk about, but one of the interesting things that, that came up, and I don't know if you have time to talk about it, was, was earlier uh, Quincy Jones came up with a quote. I don't know. I'm sure you saw it saying that the Beatles mm-hmm. weren't a very good band. And, and and I have a good reason why I think he came up with that rather nasty statement. But, you know, I know you've got a lot of ground to cover. So are you well, guys... Well, no, I'd love discussion? to hear. Why, why do yeah. you think he said that? Well, I'll tell, tell you what happened. And I remember this vividly. I was a, at a party at the Beatles' house in 1964. And Peggy Lipton, the actress... Um, She was well-known then. She was a young actress. She was in a lot of great uh, television shows. Was absolutely Mm -hmm. besotted with Paul McCartney. And she Mm -hmm. said to me at this party, I am going to marry Paul. And she did Mm -hmm. embark on a a relationship with Paul in 1964 and 1965. And then guess what happened? Paul did not marry her. Who Who married Peggy Lipton? Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones. (gasps) So, Yeah, yeah, and I would guess that um, during their relationship, which lasted uh, 10 or 12 years before they were divorced, that Peggy might have thrown Paul at Quincy a few times. And so Uh um, I could be (laughs) wrong, but I think it's a good reason why Quincy probably didn't like the Beatles and didn't like Paul in particular (laughs) because he, he caught his wife's eye before he caught his wife's eye, if you know what I mean. Anyway, <laughs> very around, uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, and, and, you know, I think there was an element of resentment in, in Quince's remarks about the Beatles he made in an interview last week. So um, I thought hmm. that could that could be the background, and you are now learning this uh, because I've I, I never talked about this before, but I thought it was an interesting little phenomenon. Yeah, the green-eyed monster. Exactly, exactly. And the green-eyed monster. Well, that's, yeah, the green-eyed monster can can be pretty nasty.
1: Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And um, and sometimes it gets worse worse as decades roll by. <laughs> so. Oh, that's
0: true. That's true. Anyway, I'm, i I well, I, he, I couldn't resist throwing that in.
1: I loved it. I'm really happy that you did share that because I I did see a lot of. Um, negative things that Quincy Jones remarked on last week and I thought it was rather bizarre. But um yeah. but Ivor we are so thrilled to have you on the program with us today and we appreciate you taking the time out of your super, super busy schedule. And Thank I have you. to tell you that everyone in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, which is the home of Beatles at the Ridge, as you know, is sending love to you and everybody wants to know when you're going to be back again. You know, the this award winning festival is coming up in September. It's I believe yeah, September well, I'm, 14th I'm, and 15th.
0: September fourteenth. Well, I must tell you, I have, I had such a sensational time with you all down at the ridge where everybody is so remarkably warm and friendly and welcoming. I, you know, I can't wait to go back. So I'm going to tell you that I've just finished a children's book, a children's book, Lena. So can you believe that? Oh, um, that's your, fabulous. Your, your, yes, your, I can believe that. <laughs> Yeah, well, and the children's book is called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Penguins. And I'm going to tell you, if I may, if I may, here's, I'm going to give you the 30-second bit about it. Okay, so about two years ago, I was doing a lecture tour in South America, and the ship took me to a place called the Falkland Islands. Now, the Falkland Islands are right in the middle of the Atlantic, 300 miles from Argentina. I got off the ship, and lo and behold, I found a little island in the middle of nowhere that was more British than the British. And (laughs) believe it or not, they have telephone booths, they have everything English. And they are English. It is an English colony. Now, while I was there, there were 2,000 humans and 50,000 penguins. And I got friendly with, I got friendly with the Penguins, and I found four Penguins who told me their story, and their story was that they decided that there was not much to do on the island, they were English, and they decided to form a rock group called the Penguins, which would be bigger than the Beatles. And they had a manager, they signed a manager called Brian Falkenstein, and he took them to America. He took them to America, and he and they were were guests on the Ed Pelican show.
1: Oh. Ed Pelican,
0: who is actually a pelican. I love it. And they were so good that they wrote. But, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but it's a kid's book, <clears throat> and you know their first their first big hit was uh, I want to hold your flipper.
1: And they went on oh. to
0: other, other big hits. So this is kind of a, a kids' comedy uh, book that I hope to finish by May the 1st, and you never know, I could be down with you guys at the Ridge uh, next fall.
1: Oh, oh I that think that would, would be uh, perfect. That would be a gonna, perfect, gonna perfect place. I'm going to hold a room
0: just in case. <laughs> Please do. Okay, and, and and the only problem is I don't know whether I can bring the Penguin Rock Group, uh, but I certainly can bring <laughs> pictures of the Penguin Rock Group, uh, which will, which you will love. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you any more about it. Uh, so, as I say, <laughs> it's, your, it's your program. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that is so fabulous. I love that. It's not surprising that you've won over not only the Beatles, but the Penguins. So, right. really Thank proud you. of you, Ivor. <laughs>
0: Good. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Well, okay, I do have one very important question that I want to start out with for you today. You know, I'm a huge George Harrison fan, and Jude mentioned in the opening that you served as George Harrison's ghostwriter in August and September of 1964. Tell us, if you will, what was that experience like?
0: Well, it was kind of a a, a rocky start, and what happened was, that I was hired I, I, I worked for the London Daily Express, I joined the Beatles in, in one thousand nine hundred and sixty four on their first American tour, as you know, and when I got there, uh, my editor said, George is contracted to us, the newspaper the London Daily Express, to write a weekly column, and you, Ivor, are going to ghost the column for George because George may be good on the guitar, but he's not considered a brilliant uh, writer. So I thought, okay, that sounds like a great idea. So for the first 10 days of the tour, I didn't get a chance to sit down and pick George's brains because he went to bed at 3 a.m. and he woke up at 3 p.m. And that was past Mm -hmm. my deadline. So I must confess, Mm -hmm. for the first two columns uh, under George's name, I uh, kind of wrote what I thought he would say. And I played it very carefully, and I, and I didn't do it, you know, with any great panache. Well, on the plane, George cornered me and said, um, about my column, he said, it's been running in London for two weeks, he said, and it's a load of old rubbish. And I said, well, yeah. I said, yeah, of course it is, George, because I made it all up. I said, why don't you sit down with me when you get a chance and tell me what's going on in your mind? And George said, ah, not a bad idea. So for the next uh, two or three weeks, he actually found time to talk to me and we, we, got, we hit it off much better. The columns improved. George was happy and he pocketed the checks for my work. So I think George probably <laughs> owes me quite, quite a bit, but I'm not going to get the money. I'm not, not reckoning on it. Anyway, so our relationship improved <laughs> enormously, his column improved enormously, and we got on famously. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you do have to know a bit of what the person's thinking, don't you?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, Jude, what I was doing was I, I was writing absolute piffle, rubbish. I was saying things like, um, George, we're just we're about to hit New Orleans, where... You know the mu- the music rocks and the blues are forever. You know, come on, you know, New Orleans. Uh, I, I, I was playing it safe. You know, I was playing it safe, and it, and and it read like uh, rubbish. It was rubbish. It was kind of kind of crippling, in inconsequential stuff. But anyway, well, it, it improved. It improved. But I'll tell you one place stuff. you didn't put any rubbish, and
2: that's in the Beatles and me on tour.
0: Yeah, you and I have been,
2: over the last year, we've been talking back and forth on the phone, and I've been working with your book. I mean, I've carried it with me to every room in my house. It's been with me on every trip. Because I want to say that of all the books written about that 1964 North American tour, you are the one who does not embellish. You don't put yourself in situations that you weren't in for the sake of publicity. There's no confusion. You tell the straight story of what happened between 19 August and 21 September 64 you tell the truth and nothing but the truth and there's no stretching no exaggerating it's the real deal so with that in mind tell us the fascinating story of what happened that night at the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles with John Lennon, Jane Mansfield, and savior George Harrison
0: jumping in (laughs) Yes. Well, well what happened was one of the problems had been that The Beatles were trapped in their hotel rooms, as you know. I mean, you know, your your definitive books on John Lennon spell it all out. But you know that on this tour, they were trapped prisoners in their hotel rooms. So they never got out. They never got to shop. Not that they wanted to shop. um, uh, And they never got outside the hotel room except to go to the stadium or go to a press conference or go to the airport. So... Jane Mansfield, who was quite an operator, I mean, she knew what publicity was all about. I mean, she was one of the first exponents of what they used to call, what they called more recently, wardrobe malfunction. She was very, oh. remember that? Remember wardrobe malfunction? Anyway, I do. So, <laughs> who can so, forget so, it? So what, used to, what used to happen was that, that Jane knew how to um, yank the media. So anyway, she went to the people's and wanted to have a picture taken, but um, Brian said, "Oh, uh, can you come back another time?" But John was somewhat taken with her, and they all agreed rather on the uh, just at the spur of the moment that the, the day later they would Jane would take them to see her friend Johnny Rivers perform at the whiskey a Go-Go, so they <laughs> met, they set that date, and the limo picked the boys up and took them to the whiskey, and then we followed them. in in our limo, Mm -hmm. and we met them at the Whiskey. Now, I should tell you that Paul McCartney was not present that night because he was, um, how shall I put it delicately, he was having a tater tate with uh, uh, Miss, um, uh, the lady, Peggy Peggy Lipton. Peggy Lipton, Mm -hmm. he was hanging Mm -hmm. out with Peggy. So Paul missed that event. Now, when we got to the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, the place was jammed, and the Beatles somehow got stuck in a booth, a kind of a, a booth on a an, on a riser, kind of almost like being on stage. And when they mm-hmm. got there, they thought it would be a private event, but it was jam-packed, and they were trapped in their booth.
1: Um, yeah. And
0: I could see, I mean, to be honest with you, John was, I believe, I mean, I was sitting on the table just looking up at them as if it was a stage, and I, I must tell you, Jude, you probably knew this anyway, but John was inclined even though he was uh, married, for a little hanky-panky when it came along. And there was a little hanky-panky going on in the booth with Jane, who was a lovely, beautiful, beautiful lady an actress um, um, and all that sort of stuff and loved publicity, and she wanted to meet the Beatles, partly because of the publicity it would bring to her, and it brought publicity. Anyway, so here we are. The Beatles are trapped in this booth. They're serving them drinks. Johnny Rivers hasn't come on. Uh, a photographer from the Herald-Examiner comes up to the booth and starts shooting pictures of the Beatles trapped in the booth with with Jane. Okay, Ringo, mm-hmm. John, and, and uh, George. Now, George is getting a little bit stroppy. It's an English word, of course, as you know, uh, Jude, meaning uh, yeah. upset, annoyed, irritated. And right. what happens is the photographer has, in those days, they had these huge... Uh, speed graphic cameras, which were gigantic—I mean, almost as big as a refrigerator—I exaggerate slightly. <laughs> so, and they also had, they also had flash bulbs that every time you took a picture, you had to unscrew the dead flash bulb and put a new one in. This photographer was sticking the camera up George Harrison's nostrils almost to take <laughs> pictures, and George was upset. George had a few drinks; he got more upset. He told a photographer from the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Uh, would you please uh, leave us alone? He used stronger words than leave us alone. I think it was like Baccarat. Um, <laughs> and we were watching, I was watching this and all of a sudden the photographer ignored George, went right up there, shot another picture. George picked up his drink and he threw it at the photographer. Uh, Good George for him. not, threw the drink at the photographer, the contents of the drink, not the glass, the contents ice, right. the water, mm-hmm. whatever. Now, George probably was not trained as a drink thrower and his, his aim <laughs> was his aim was somewhat off target and and there was another lady in the booth next door called Mamie Van Doren, another a beautiful actress, uh wannabe star and most of George's drink landed on Mamie Van Doren. Oh, uh, no. and mm-hmm. so Mamie Van Doren jumped up screaming as if the place was on fire, uh, all hell all hell broke loose. A couple of the, a couple of the um, security guys uh, guards came in. They lifted the Beatles and Jane out of the booth and handed them over the crowd to get out to the limousine in the alley, and mm-hmm. they left. Now it would have been probably forgotten, but the next morning, as we were leaving L.A. to go to the next stop the front page of the Herald-Examiner in Los Angeles that George held was a picture of the drink being thrown at George. The photographer yeah. had taken that picture. George was yeah. embarrassed. Brian Epstein gave George a bit of a lecture about that's not the way you treat mm-hmm. the press, and that was a bit of a disaster, mm-hmm. although it got a lot of publicity from Miss Mansfield. And, and that right. was the, the story. And the, and the worst thing was, of course, the, the Beatles, the three Beatles, never got to hear Johnny Rivers sing. That
1: is oh, good thing. heavens! That is
0: tragic. Yeah, is.
2: But, but yeah, the <laughs> best thing is that Cynthia never saw the photos, and the photographer wasn't able right. to release those photos, and and that was a wonderful thing.
0: Yes, that's right. I mean, it was kind of silly to, to to do what George did, but he just was getting so frustrated, and also, as you can imagine, after a few drinks, and you get angry. Uh, and, sure. and, you know, George George was normally, normally under, under control, but he got a little bit um, angry, and then he, that's the way he behaved. And that wasn't a, 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 the kind of thing that Brian wanted on the front page of the local daily newspapers. Sure, sure.
1: Ter- yeah, certainly. Now, that was just um, shortly after that incident. They uh, eventually went to Jacksonville, Florida, and there was a lot going on with the civil rights movement. And for, for those that are listening that don't know, Ivor explained to the readers what was happening with the civil rights movement and with the Beatles and how that fit yeah, well, into um, the Jacksonville story.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, what actually happened was that we were going to Jacksonville and there was a, there was a hurricane, I think it was called Hurricane Dora, and so mm-hmm. we couldn't land when we were supposed to land in Jacksonville. So they decided to fly to Key West, Florida. Now, Key West, Florida was also raining hard when we landed, and we all hung out with John in his in his uh, 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 bung- bungalow hotel room in Key West. Now, what you've got to understand that during that period was the beginning of the civil rights movement, and there was a huge amount of stories about the civil rights in America, and John, I remember John holding a front page of a newspaper. I think it, I think it was a picture of a large sheriff man in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, holding mm-hmm. back a fierce, savage-looking uh, dog, a pack dog, uh, as, as a few feet away, several um, uh, African Americans marched in a. In, in a march in Birmingham, Alabama, and John was very. John was the most, as as Jude will attest, that the most socially conscious people of them all. I mean, with all right. due respect to, to the other three, uh, they were they were very um, concerned and they were very aware. But John was the spark, if you like. And yeah. and and during so so while we were in um, in Key West, Florida, and then we went the next day when the rain stopped and the hurricane. Pass. We went to Jacksonville, and somebody asked the boys whether they would play to an audience of segregated uh, audience. And of course, I mean, their immediate, and I think they may have had it in the contract, but but, but their immediate response was very strongly, no, we will not play if, if we find that the concert promoter has has. Banned African Americans from attending. Then we will not perform there. They were very firm about that. And in fact, the next day after after Key West, Florida, we went to Jacksonville. I, I, mean, I think it was the Gator Bowl or the, something like that. The, the name of the stadium. It was pretty crowded. Uh, there was a mixed mixed crowd. But but I must tell you this: um, I, on the whole trip in 1964, and some of the concerts I went to in '65. Um, African Americans weren't big fans of the Beatles. I mean, things have changed, right. as, as everything has. So the idea of, of, of playing to segregated audiences appalled the Beatles, and they, they made a strong stand to say that they would they would not perform where, if that ever happened. So during right. the whole tour, it never happened. And, uh, and as I say, 1964 was a pretty huge year for segregation, for civil rights, and it was all being played out um, as the Beatles crisscrossed America.
2: Yeah. I'm going to tell our listening audience, because we're coming up on our 30-minute time frame, that if you, we're going to get cut off in two minutes live, but this whole show will be in archives. So um, you can just Wait, in, in about 15, 20 minutes, this whole show will be on Blog Talk Radio. She said, she said, "I candy series number one, Ivor Davis, so you'll be able to hear the whole thing. And okay. we were going to talk a little bit about your time at Ole Miss when James Meredith entered, but I want to make sure that we get everything in about the Beatles. So let me cool. skip down and ask you, um, in 1965 you were privy to another gigantic Beatles landmark event which is of course the night that the Fab 4 met Elvis and before you tell us about that night, which is just, you're one of the very few people to be present for that, I wanted to read from Larry Kane's Ticket to Ride, because Larry really sets the stage for what happens that night, and he makes it pretty darn clear that you, in fact, were one of the few people in the room at Elvis's house when the Beatles and Elvises met, and Elvis met, he said, the situation was odd, because most of us, journalists were watching from the outside. Elvis's handlers insisted that no broadcast journalists would be allowed in. There would be no tape of all of this. All we radio guys saw was Elvis greeting the Beatles. That was it. But several print reporters, including Ivor Davis, and several veterans of the Hollywood beat, were given the green light to enter the complex with the Beatles. So very clearly, you are one of the few people there. Tell us what happened.
0: Well, um, well thank you, Larry. Because Larry was on that trip, as you, as you know, and has written written a, 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 some very good books about about his trip, a Ticket to Ride, as you say, um, yeah. and. The the terrible thing was that I got a call from Mal, and Mal said, we're going to see Elvis. Now, you've got to realize a little bit of backstory, if I may give you. What happened was the Beatles idolized, particularly John, idolized Elvis. I mean, John listened to Blue Suede Shoes and Heartbreak Hotel 50 times through Radio Luxembourg Mm -hmm. while he was in, in, in Liverpool at home. So the idea of meeting Elvis was their dream. The first year, 1964, they were too busy. They didn't stop. Elvis was making movies. And Brian Epstein had met Colonel Parker, but they couldn't get together. Comes the call in 1965, the summer of 65. We're going to Elvis's house. Wow, everybody's excited. And, you know, when you think back, so the Beatles were in limo number one. I was in limo number two. So when we mm-hmm. got to the house, Uh, Oh, I should say that the thing, the only disappointing kicker, is that it was Brian who wrote a memo saying that no photographers would be allowed, no recordings would be allowed, which was really, for Brian, who knew so much about publicity, uh, was really a pretty terrible thing to do because there's not a single picture of the Beatles and Elvis in existence. I mean, can you believe that? Two of the greatest legends. Yeah, two of the greatest legends in. In the business and they're not a picture together so we were a bit upset about that and the idea was that we were supposed to make ourselves invisible uh i find it rather difficult to make myself invisible but i did the best i could now so we, so we get we get to the house and john is kind of marching in and there you walk into this rather large living room like a little ballroom which is over decorated heavy curtains and there's a, a, a jukebox in one corner a piano in another corner and i always uh, this i mean this is true and a color television a giant color television all of about 16 inches big mm-hmm. now <laughs> yeah you've got to realize 16 inches was giant giant in the old days <laughs> now the feature the Beatles had never seen colour TV because we didn't have colour TV in nineteen sixty four and sixty five in England. And if we did, it was like in a few a few sets. And the other thing right. we didn't have in England, we had we didn't have uh, remotes. You know those things that mm-hmm. save you going up to the screen. I mean, I'm being a bit facetious here. You can you can tell a a bit <laughs> because I mean I mean in the old days you went up to the TV and you squeezed. The, the button and change channels, <laughs> and there was right. a, with his remote. The TV was playing. Elvis was flicking channels with his remote. Uh, Paul was fascinated with the remote. We're well, in there, into the house, and it's it's crowded with uh, the guys that turned out to be uh, Elvis's Memphis Mafia, and, and some lovely looking young ladies. A lot of them I noticed, that by chance had uh, had had um, belly buttons exposed. I guess that was the style of the moment. And for the first 10, 15 minutes, nobody said anything. I mean, somebody should have been, uh, somebody should have been the, 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 the diplomat. But finally, right. mm-hmm. Paul jumps up and Elvis is sitting there looking like Elvis. And the thing I remember so much about Elvis was, and and I always say this, you know, he had sideburns that were like, as, as deep and as thick uh, as sort of old shag carpeting, you know that shag carpeting. <laughs> so he, uh, and I, and I looked at that and I, and, he, and I thought, wow, you know, he really does have sideburns like that. Anyway, right. So finally, mm-hmm. Paul goes up, shakes hands with 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 Elvis, says hi, I'm Paul, and then the rest of the guys go up and and introduce themselves, which is kind of funny when you think of it, and that yeah. kind of. That kind of got the thing loosened up a little bit. Um, so they were sitting around. Elvis was on a couch. Uh, Priscilla came in. Or at least I, I, I wasn't sure it was Priscilla, and then I realized it was because he put his arm around her, and she, she had one of those, um, those hairdos. What did they call them? Where it, you know, she was five foot two, and the hairdo was four foot six. The, you the know, beehive. That? Beehives, that's beehive. That's a beehive. Yeah. An uh-huh. uh, incredible beehive hair. so said the hair was almost as tall as she? And I, I and I realized, of <laughs> course, that 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 was Priscilla because Elvis gave her a kind of a uh, a squeeze and a cuddle um, and um, uh, no introduction. Anyway, so the conversation is 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 nothing is is going on. And suddenly, in classic fashion, I give Elvis. He had a bit of a sense of humor. He jumped up. He said. The classic line, I'm going to bed unless you guys came here to jam. Well, I mean, that was like the magic formula because out came, out came the guitars. Everybody started plugging in. Poor old uh, Ringo didn't have his drums, so he wandered off to play snooker uh, billiards in the other room uh, where, <laughs> where Tom Parker was. And the Beatles and Elvis jammed for about 15 minutes, mainly Elvis songs. Uh, no beatles songs whatsoever they did it for ten mm-hmm. or fifteen minutes they had, a, they had a bit of a chat and they had a bit of a chat and Paul started you know I was standing kind of like trying to be invisible uh, on the wall behind them and I could, you know they were talking about the the perils of flying in in jet planes because I think uh, Paul or somebody mentioned the fact that Buddy Holly had died recently in a plane crash, and that right. sort of thing and that, and they, they they were much much more relaxed, and one of the conversations that took place, I recall, is when Paul said to Elvis something about, oh, I wish you did the kind of stuff that we remember. Now, if you say that to a young guy, well, Elvis wasn't that old. He was older than the beefers. If you say that, well, the problem is that this gives Elvis the impression that you're criticizing
1: him by right. saying
0: the new, the new stuff you're doing is a load of old rubbish. Um, right. Elvis mm-hmm. took, took offense to Anyway, they got on much better, and and it went on. Everybody was having drinks. There was a buffet table, and it turned out to be much better. And then right at the end, as the Beatles were about to leave, uh, I forget which member of the Memphis Mafia said, uh, you know, you guys are down the road. Why don't we get together with Elvis again? And John said, fine. Uh, but, um, but they never did. They never did. Right. And then... And then if I have time to go on about the Elvis footnote, do I have time to tell you about the Elvis footnote? Okay. The reason why Elvis was a bit unfriendly or or cool was, I think, and I think everybody agrees that, number one, the Beatles had knocked the king off the top of the hip parade, number one. Sure. And number two, two, as you know, Elvis was making three pretty pretty cookie-cutter movies every year, and he didn't Mm -hmm. like the contract. And all those movies, Mary Ann Mobley, uh, Aunt Margaret, different leading ladies, same, same story, similar music. And then right. along come the Beatles with A Hard Day's Night. And I noticed you said who, which is better, Hard Day's Night or Help. And if there's time, I'll give you my opinion. But so Elvis <laughs> was very jealous of the Beatles because they wanted mm-hmm. to get together. But he was envious, there's no doubt whatsoever. And then, And then to make matters worse, as most people know, Elvis then turned around a few years later and trashed the Beatles to write Richard mm-hmm. Nixon. Um, and the story mm-hmm. behind that is that he went to the White House hoping to get a federal drug agency badge from Richard Nixon. Elvis liked <laughs> badges. And he went to the White House, and when he was at the White House, he said, he said the Beatles, uh, he, he, he trashed the Beatles. He said the Beatles came to America, took the money, went back to England, and badmouth America, mm-hmm. which wasn't true, and and from that day onwards, the Beatles were very upset that Elvis should do that. And, and, and mm-hmm. I'm just going to tell you one other interesting point, uh, and and you, Jude, as a as the number one expert on John Lennon, would would realise this. And I suddenly thought about this because after Elvis badmouthed the Beatles, Richard Nixon got John Mitchell, uh, the Attorney General, to start the five year campaign or so to, to right. get John deported. Now, right. as it happens, as we all know, as you know, uh, John won his battle to stay in America. John did not get deported back to England. Can you imagine if John had lost that battle, he would have had to go back to England and he may be alive today? I mean, yeah, I, it, true. It, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's
2: what true, <laughs> it's true. In a way, you know, even though Elvis wasn't certainly doing that to help him, it might have turned out differently. And although the powers that were at play, I think, in John's assassination probably could have found him anywhere, you know. Yes, I I suppose.
1: You know, but that is
2: such an interesting story. So I take it, Ivor, that Brian was not – present that evening when the Beatles met Elvis or certainly he would have facilitated the introduction.
0: I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry I should have pointed out I mean I I was trying to abbreviate the story a little bit but yes Brian was there, Colonel Parker was there, they were in the other room and what was interesting was that that they had a cocktail um, a a cocktail kind of uh, cabinet and I remember vividly that the cocktail cabinet suddenly opened up and instead of a cocktail cabinet, it became a roulette wheel. And Parker and mm. uh, and Brian and a few other odds and sods uh, started playing roulette while the Beatles were in the other room. And and, uh, and Mingo was playing snooker. So, so Brian was there um, and Parker was there. And, and what I remember very vividly was right at the end, we knew it was the end because Parker got, his uh, underlings, of the Memphis Mafia, to come in with about five rather large shopping bags, which he gave, with, were handed to each of the Beatles, and they were they were full up with Elvis's records. And, oh my and, goodness! Uh, yeah. And so the souvenir of the visit to Elvis was given to the, each of the Beatles. I don't know what they did with them, but they had four shopping bags, five shopping bags, wow. one for Brian, a uh, of, of Elvis mm. memorabilia. Um, and wow. mostly records, mostly records, because don't forget, back then, uh, the merchandising was fairly limited. I mean, records, maybe maybe there were a mug or two, a mug, but nothing like the mar- merchandising of what they do today.
1: Right, right. Well, Ivor, I wish we could sit here and chat over few pints and um, keep on going, but our time is running out. We are just so in awe of your stories and could just listen to you talk all day long. I am just mesmerized by by listening to you but we will have to have you come back and talk about your experiences with reagan and kennedy and even muhammad ali so um and we want to come have you back and talk more about ladies and gentlemen the penguins oh yes
0: thank you yes i'd love to do that that's going to be fun you know it's full of i think full of good humor and stuff like that by the way just as a matter of interest i realized that the Bobby Kennedy assassination, which was in August of 1968, means that this year is the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy oh. assassination. Oh, in, in yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out, I'm sure, and uh, including those wonderful pictures, uh, not wonderful pictures, just shocking pictures, that my friend Harry mm. Benson, the photographer, did. did, I mean, he and I were in the kitchen, when, when Bobby got shot. But anyway, uh, it's another, hmm. another story for another day.
2: Well, tell our listeners, Ivor, how they can keep in touch with you and be able to buy your books and find out about all your new releases. How can they follow you?
0: Um, well, the best way is that they go to www. Um I also have a Twitter uh, account, which I sometimes Twitter, although I'm not, I, I'm not mm-hmm. as Twitterable as most people. Uh, it's just it's just <laughs> twitter dot com i davis twitter dot com i davis beetles. When I have something inconsequential to say, I sometimes Twitter. Um, uh, but <laughs> anyway, so check out ibadavisbeetles dot com. And then once the penguins start to perform and they travel around the country, I will be with them to promote my children's book.
1: Oh, fabulous. Well, Ivor, you truly are eye candy in every possible way, and it's been a delight to introduce someone so interesting and important in the Beatles' world to our fabulous listeners. Well, thank and we're you so keeping much. our really fingers crossed.
0: Thanks. Well, we're Come keeping on. our
2: and fingers crossed that with, that you will be coming to Walnut Ridge and the Fest for Beatles fans and our paths will cross this year because I tell you, every single time that we are with you, a splendid time really is guaranteed for all, and we mean that.
0: Thank you so much, and good luck with, the, with She Said, She Said, and um, I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to listening.